Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. Hello and thank you for coming back and joining me for another episode of the Mountain Conversations podcast. In this episode I had the chance to chat with Dr Sean Wensley who is a senior vet with the PDSA. He's had an extensive career and just to add to that he's recently released his new book Through a Vet's Eyes. It's a really in-depth account of how we interact with well-known species um, here in the UK and I'm not going to say any more than that. I want you to listen and hopefully read the book and find out for yourself but it was a really eye-opening experience for me reading the book and I hope that through just just through this conversation we can learn a little bit more about what animal welfare actually means and what we can be doing to improve the lives of the animals which we know so well and love so much. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this journey through a vet's eyes. Hi Sean, thanks for coming to chat to me today. Hello, thanks very much for having me. I'm so glad we got here. As you say, there's been a few false starts, um, child illnesses, travel complications and whatnot, but we're here finally. Yep, against all odds. (laughs) Um, So should we go straight in? And can you tell me what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, sure. Well, I hope we'll be able to chat a bit about both animal welfare, um, the quality of individual animals' lives and... um, natural history and nature conservation obviously focus more on populations of, of animals um species endangerment but of course populations being comprised of individual animals um and i guess we have a shared love of natural history and being outdoors and in, in open places and spaces um and these are themes that i've written about in my book through a vet's eyes which i know you've kindly read or read some of so maybe we could talk about that as well I have I've absolutely read it and I'm really excited to talk about it um but first um with all my guests I like to have a bit of a a background on you obviously you've talked about animal welfare and natural history so I'd love to know like where that came from was it from it was it from childhood or was it a a later discovery I know I've read your book but you know for an audience that potentially hasn't read it just tell us a little bit about your natural journey I suppose (laughs) yeah sure um well I'm, I'm a vet now um, so that's my my career and my profession. Um, but I was, as you'll well know from the book, fortunate to grow up in the northwest of England. Um, so just between Liverpool and Southport on the Sefton coast, which is uh, one of the largest coastal dune systems. Um, we have lots of fantastic wildlife and um, designations for wildlife protection in that area. Um, so lots of migratory seabirds and waders and so on, um, and pink-footed geese, not least, um, out on the on the coast and the estuaries itself. And then just inland, there's the pine woods, which uh, supports a, a population of red squirrels. And we have natterjack toads and bee orchids. So I think you know my love of of nature and uh, and the natural world was very much um, f- fostered in being able to 
put my bag down after a day at school, jump on my bike and head off into the pine woods and, and down to the beach. Um, always at risk of being called a nature boy for doing so, but that was a, a badge I wore proudly. Um, and then I wanted to to be a vet, you know, obviously thinking about career uh, possibilities. Um, I was pretty certain that a vet is what I'd like to go for. Um, and I was fortunate to get a place at Liverpool University, um, which is in Liverpool Vet School where I studied. And while I was there, I became very interested in animal welfare and animal ethics. I talk about uh, an undergraduate research project that I did while I was at Liverpool. And that was quite formative. You know, it's one of those experiences that really shaped your outlook and perspective on, on the world and made you reflect in a different way. And I thought, hmm, yeah, I'd really like to get get into that a bit more. So I went on to do a master's in uh, applied animal behaviour and animal welfare. <clears throat> um, and then in, after that, just as, in, just quickly, uh, I went into veterinary practice initially. So I've worked in uh, largely companion animal practice with people's pets. And also my first practice had a high caseload of so-called exotic pets. So we were seeing reptiles and birds and uh, other more unusual species. Um, and a and lastly, I've worked for uh, and continue to work for the veterinary charity, PDSA. Um, so we provide free and low cost veterinary treatment to people who can't afford private veterinary care, which, of course, is um, a growing number of people at the minute who become eligible for our service in the cost of living crisis. Um, and we also advocate for improved standards of of, of animal welfare. Um, and alongside my job at PDSA, I've been fortunate to work with some of the uh, professional veterinary bodies um, so I served as president of the British Veterinary Association which is our national uh, representative body in the UK um, and up until very recently was chairing the animal welfare working group of the Federation of Vets of Europe um, we develop veterinary animal welfare policy to hopefully have influence across Europe a strong CV I'd say <laughs> well yeah I've been fortunate you know it's uh, well I'm sure talk more about this but it's always been a case of follow the heart really um mm-hmm. of course we, you know making and taking opportunities but I've been really fortunate just to spend time with people who um haven't you know who've enriched me um and to be able to benefit from being in their company absolutely no I mean this sounds amazing I know I know that you know as you know my my family are all sort of from Liverpool um my mum's mm. side of the family and it's really it's it's really unusual actually hearing someone talking about that part of England being sort of rich in nature because my experience of Liverpool where my family all live and sort of the way they're inclined that it's they're very much city people and Mm. when we go there it's very much you know we're we're in the city we're not sort of going out and exploring and stuff so I think it's only very recently when I've sort of been up there exploring on my own that I've kind of realized oh there is this huge rich sort of Mm. biodiversity in the area and when you're talking about pink-footed geese and things that's all stuff I associate with where I am now in Norfolk but it's sort of it's it's amazing and I think there's probably a lot of people in that area who perhaps don't know and don't realize how rich their area is for yeah well, well quite possibly I mean and I'm sure that's true of, of, of lots of areas but I mean I mm-hmm. needless to say love the people as well and I love the kind of the, the culture and the There's nothing uh, like it <laughs> yeah I mean Liverpool's a, a fabulous place to uh, call home even though home is a, a, a little bit north of Liverpool so I'm a sort of I'm a, a scouse wannabe really <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, I think it's really interesting to think that you and I are sort of connected both through having a, a sort of some family connection to Liverpool and also then uh, through pink-footed geese, because I've always seen the, the, the geese coming in in the autumn at this sort of time of year, September, October, and you know, they're all arriving from Iceland and people will, will they're so 
impressive when they go across in their skeins and across Formby Town Centre. People stop and look up, and they arrive in those in those big numbers at this at this time, and then, as you know, start to disperse across the UK, not least to Norfolk. So a lot of our <laughs> so say pink for the geese head off your way, and I was able to um, a few years back just visit Snettersham for the first time and okay. then see them there. And I, I absolutely adored doing that, but I've not yet seen them in Iceland. I'd love to one day. Have you, Charlie? No, that's actually me and my mum were talking about because we we both and the, the kids, we really want to go to Iceland. So we're trying to sort of mm. plan it and sort of work out when's the best time to go and sort of when we can go and start saving, especially because yeah. it's quite uh, an expensive one. <laughs> I believe so. Yeah, many people have said that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it is, but it it'd definitely be it would definitely be worth it. Um, at Bird Fair earlier this year, I was talking to a few of the the tour companies from Iceland, and they're saying about you know all the whale watching potential, mm. and and I just yeah, it just sounds incredible. So amazing place. Yeah, yeah. One day we'll get there. Yeah. So to see the geese in, I suppose, what would feel like almost all of their locations then at different parts of their uh, sort of life stages and journeys would be magnificent. Yeah. It would be absolutely brilliant. Right. The book. Let's talk about the book. So I've got this the book in front of me. Um, Through a vet's eyes, how we can all choose a better life for animals. So I... I went into this book blind, as I like to do with books. I didn't know what I didn't read. You know, I didn't read the back because I like to have a bit of a surprise and see what it's going to be about. Um, so I just want to know sort of how did it come about, first of all? Obviously, it's a book talking about sort of animal welfare um, and it's, it covers quite a lot of different subjects um, sort of within that within that sort of that umbrella, I suppose, of animal welfare. But how did the book come about? Yep. Yeah, so I. I first started thinking about the book, I think, when I was doing the Masters that I mentioned. So it's a Masters in, as I said, animal, animal behaviour and animal welfare. And one of the key features of thinking about animal welfare and animal ethics and how we relate to um, fellow animals <clears throat> on, in recent decades has been the, the birth and then the burgeoning of animal welfare science. Mm-hmm. So questions of how we ought to use animals and exploit them um, and use them for human benefit has uh, have, have raged, you know, for, for centuries and, and millennia. Pythagoras is uh, better known for his maths now, but he wrote thoughtfully about animal ethics. And he's just one example way back. Um, but throughout that history, there's always been the possibility of dismissing concern for the welfare of animals as anthropomorphic or a case of misplaced human sentiment, um, something that's soppy or uh, the, the the work of bunny huggers. And, you know, you will, you, you will have heard all of these sorts of yeah. um, suggestions. So in recent uh, decades, the last 50, 60 years, there's been this science of animal welfare, which has been, uh, which has brought the scientific method to questions of how animals perceive the world and what their needs and wants are from their perspective, um, ways of objectively understanding their pleasures and their pains, which is really the the bread and butter of animal welfare. And the science has been a a game changer. You know, it's provided objectivity and credibility and this um, evidence-based underpinning for what in many cases were intuitively held thoughts and feelings anyway. But when people in discussions then about what you might do about those intuitive feelings, um, if, if people defend the status quo and say, well, no, actually, a pig doesn't mind being in a firing crate or a gestation crate. Now we have pretty persuasive evidence that, in fact, they do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been really influential for 
policymakers and legislators around the world. So now it's you know it's an, a really it's been a really exciting time for me to have an interest in this subject because real change is happening around the world. But I try to in the book embed that. So the, so the, to answer your question, I think one of my primary drivers was to try and just bring a sense of that science to a non-specialist audience. Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating. Some of the scientific methodologies are, are really fascinating for example chickens self-medicating when they're in pain you know when they're given the option to uh, select food that either does or doesn't have analgesics uh, in it um so i just thought that was lovely to talk about and and uh, and convey sort of the the innovations and and the implications um but then to set that that broader issue of animal welfare the social issue of animal welfare in the context of other big issues that we need to think about so biodiversity loss climate change antimicrobial resistance um fair and just returns for producers you know there's a whole as we well know and can sometimes become a bit downbeat about a maelstrom of of issues but animal welfare you know my job as a vet is I think a a key role for me as a vet is to make sure that animal welfare is is part of that global discussion you know and it doesn't get sidelined as the others are uh, addressed albeit that my personal tendency is to desperately want the others to be addressed as well Mm -hmm. so it's um yeah, it's a, there's a, a mix of those themes in there with, I hope, not only an await, awareness raising sort of mission, but also um, trying to convey a sense of optimism and positivity and certainly yeah. not blaming people for the state of the world, but just mm-hmm. thinking how might we be able to continue trying to do things better and differently. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think I found parts very frustrating in that, you know, you were talking, there was one particular bit where you were talking about um, the dehorning of of the young um, cattle. And Mm. it was as if there was like this argument that was having to be proved that proven that they felt it was they needed the and the the um anesthetic to not mm. feel the pain and it's like well why would there be an argument about them feeling pain do you know do you, yeah, you know, like, yeah. i was reading it thinking yeah okay it's an animal if just like us if someone's going to do something to you remove a part of your body that's going to hurt you need painkillers for that yeah um, yeah did you did you find that quite frustrating and quite yeah difficult? yeah yeah i think that's a really you know pertinent observation because it is a frustrating field and I think animal welfare science has been accused of being the science of the bleedingly obvious you know Mm -hmm. um as you say if you're going to chop a sensitive and innovative part of a a a fellow mammal's body off (laughs) to to put it in those terms Mm -hmm. um then of course when they wriggle and resist and vocalize then it's highly likely to be because of it but in seeking to create the change, I mean, some of these practices are absolutely central to the current, not least economic model and, and way of ways of doing things. And all sorts of, you know, counter arguments are marshaled, some of which are, you're not a cow. Um, they, you don't know that they feel pain or that it's, you know, it's temporary. I mean, there's a, there's a question about how long does that pain last as well? Even if we accept that it's there, well, okay, maybe it's fleeting. It's no, no different to you just pricking your finger on a drawing pin or, you know, th- those sorts of things. So unfortunately, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, we, we, to take the trouble of finding out to what extent is the pain present and how long does it persist and how can it be alleviated? Um, 
through the uses of, as you say, local anaesthetics, um, post-procedure analgesics. Um, it's all, that's all really important. And then those big, bigger discussions then feed again back into the economics because unfortunately we probably, you know, there's a widespread view that we don't really value um food from animals enough and so we do things as cheaply as possible and to add a few pence per animal for an analgesic does put the cost of the final product up a little bit but the question there is sort of at what cost to the animal did it reach its yeah its current low point um in the first place and i recognize that to have that sort of discussion in a cost of living crisis is itself very challenging um and i hope i'm you know sensitive and, and res- sensitive to and respectful of that yeah i mean it's a, it's 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 a hard one i mean i've had this i've had similar discussions when we're talking about and i've talked in episodes about the use of plastic and things you know if when you I think in, in your book you talk about um the consumer making a choice and you know the the pressure on supermarkets and things, you know, if you go in and buy the cheapest chicken, then and you know, if 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 there's twenty people and nineteen of them go in and buy the cheapest chicken, then that's the one that the supermarket are gonna go for and stock, I suppose. Um mm. it's supply and demand, isn't it? It's just mm. it's basically mm. supply and demand. But if they if it's just stopped selling the really cheap chicken then there wouldn't be an option would there it's the same with plastic bags you know like in in morrison's if you go into a shop and they haven't got any plastic bags they've only got paper ones you go oh well but i'll get a paper one i need a bag you know it's yeah so it's it's i don't know it's complex but i also feel like it could be really simple <laughs> if they just yeah. big names just went this is what we're doing everyone would go they'd moan about it for a bit on facebook and then go oh. <laughs> yeah yeah no i completely agree um and when I moved here to Northern Ireland, where I am now, um, they had actually, Northern Ireland had, had gone plastic bag free sooner than where I was in the UK. And just seeing seeing people just after I'd moved across, walking across the car park into the into the supermarket with their cotton or whatever replaceable carry bag, uh, shopping bag was, you know, just fantastic. And a, a clear demonstration that stuff can just turn on its head really if it needs to but yeah i think a couple of points that come to mind I mean, one and this does go back i think to the, the sort of aims of the book is there's this argument that well you know we're just producing what the public wants and if the public didn't support it then the um the hand of the market would would operate and we'd stop selling it but i think there's a real problem there and the, the public often don't know what standards they're supporting they don't know half of the practices that i describe in the in the book um so to just simply raise awareness then at least you can claim that it's an informed choice um i would also i think thinking about the relationship between animal welfare and the environment there's also uh the bigger discussion isn't there about our level of meat and dairy consumption mm-hmm. so i support as does the british veterinary association uh, a less and better approach to eating meat and dairy obviously if you eat those products at all so then we can reduce our overall consumption, but continue to pay the same amount, of course, in so doing, pay a little bit more for it. Mm-hmm. And I do make the case that I think there can be, a, again, without belittling uh, or diminishing the importance of every penny, but sometimes people think it co- that the higher welfare options cost a lot more than the kind of standard option, when in many cases it's not lots and lots more. Um, so there's a promotion of less and better. And then we have seen this example of so-called choice editing, where some retailers um, have taken market signals or through a 
corporate social responsibility commitment, they've decided, you know, we aren't going to stock that thing anymore. So there are examples of that. Um, and some of the charities then recognize that that's happened and they promote it to their supporters. So there's the, the uh, Compassion and World Farming uh, Good uh, Food Business Awards, and they look for examples of those sorts of commitments and then help give them profile and recognition when when they do uh, through giving them their awards mm-hmm. well I think yeah that's it's just it's so, such a complex and confusing issue I think for a lot of people it doesn't feel very I don't I don't know maybe maybe it's the same as with sort of plastic and pollution and chemical pollution and things a lot of the information coming out doesn't seem very accessible to people or maybe they don't yeah there's, they don't quite understand that as you say it isn't you know it's not 10 quid more to buy the more mm. the better welfare stuff it's just you know it's a little bit more so i suppose if that was maybe if that was communicated better i don't know i suppose through but that's what you're trying to do through your book and i think you do you do that brilliantly i think the book like well, i said to you i tell you what i think of the book i think it's absolutely gorgeous like i think you 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 somehow pull together this amazing incredible almost poetic descriptions of places in in parts with these really hard facts that are really hard to digest in places like you know you go into abattoirs you go into dairy farms it's not nice subjects that you're talking about but through through your descriptions and stuff you 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 sort of almost make it feel safe to be learning about if you know what mm. I mean yeah that's that's lovely feedback thank you very much um yeah I had a few I mean cover of your next print yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> that's a... yeah that's really kind um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting trying to pull together the two threads of sort of nature writing and thoughts about conservation and the natural world and our place in the natural world with, as you say, the more uh, ch- challenging, gritty descriptions of, of the animal welfare practices and harms that I wanted to to bring to the audience. And um, I think some of that was about providing levity so if if the if the book was just about the nasty stuff that we do to animals then it would have been a pretty grueling read so through i mean through what i feel is quite an authentic sharing of my own experience you know the way to deal with that for me personally and i thought maybe it would work for readers as well is let's go down to formby beach together and we'll do something pretty unpleasant and be exposed to something unpleasant but then we'll go and find some somewhere beautiful Mm -hmm. and remind ourselves that you know, the world isn't a totally nasty and terrible place. So there's something about that kind of psychological restoration and the function of the natural world, green space, blue space, to to go away and reflect. Um, but also a a reminder from thinking about species, animals in in, in nature and in, and in wild settings, that they, the domesticated animals that we're dealing with and, and, and that are keeping and using for our benefit all have wild uh, ancestors they've come from nature themselves and as you'll have read about in the book some of the retained uh, highly motivated behaviors that were really important in their environments of evolutionary adaptation way back um, being able to perform those behaviors in captivity is actually really important to to their welfare and their well-being so there's that kind of linking of the two worlds as well yeah and I, I liked that as well I mean it's it's I took stuff from it like and I learned stuff from it I mean like I've just I don't know if you've seen on Twitter and stuff I'm currently fostering some budgies and oh, I don't yeah. have a clue what to do with budgies but mm. I think I actually when I, when I was taking them in I was actually sort of thinking about your book and thinking about sort of 
replicating as much of the sort of wild so i'm doing air quotation marks <laughs> i know this is this is audio so you can't see that but um yeah it's sort of like replicating their wild behaviors and sort of looking at the current setup and thinking right okay how can i how can i make this better for them how can i make it happy how can i make them at least as happy as they can be before they can go off somewhere and be yeah. a bit more you know yeah yeah and, and that's a fabulous starting place if you if you've got any animal in captivity and under your care and stewardship to think about this the animal that they've evolved to be is gonna set you on a pretty sound track you know such because their their physiology and their digestive physiology will be the same or if not very very similar to their, their wild ancestors so that would help you decide what they should be eating um and as we've as we say, their their desire to perform certain behaviours that they would have done in their native Australia remains very strong as well. I think I did say on Twitter that you'd acquired them. So um, I think someone mentioned the importance of bathing opportunities. And I, I, I was lovely to see that because, I, I, as you know from the book, I used to work in a pet shop yeah. in, uh, back at home before I went to vet school. And we had caged birds um, in the shop. <clears throat> And when it was quiet, I mean, Saturdays were pretty crazy uh, in terms of serving customers, but Sundays would be a bit quieter. I and mean, you had more opportunity then to take a, a little sp- spray, you know, a mister spray of water around the birds. And they would line up to, t- to have, a, have a wash and come and flutter their wings and dip their heads and so on. Um, and if they really need those sorts of, of, of opportunities. Um, one, of the, one of the practical things I hope to try to share through the book is the uh, some of the frameworks for assessing welfare so one of them is this, the so-called five welfare needs yeah. which are actually written into uk welfare legislation so tech i mean to be strictly accurate we have a legal duty to provide these five needs but it's not really a, a heavy-handed message it's more of a sort of five-point plan to health and happiness and they are uh, environment diet behavior companionship and health so if you're looking at any species in your case budgies you can say okay what's a suitable living environment what what's a suitable diet what kind of companionships they need i know you've got is it three yeah or, there's three in yeah there. yeah so yeah. <laughs> great for a social species um look at the, the important behaviors and their healthcare needs and by working through those that five point plan it's an absolutely brilliant route to um to meeting the the, the welfare needs and ensuring both their physical health and their mental well-being which is obviously so important as well yeah I mean I think the fi- I like how with the five freedoms you you pulled them into sort of every chapter and sort of kept relating back to it so you got to know it very well I've, I'd come across it before because I start before I um changed pathways slightly I was starting out and going down on a bit of a primate welfare journey and mm. when I was doing my research for my undergraduate dissertation and then um, I began a research master's and sort of some of the stuff I was looking at was looking at these five freedoms in terms of primate um uh, captive primates um and I, I found it really interesting to sort of apply that to to each of the species and each of the cases that you were looking at throughout um and I think it's something that a lot of people probably forget about as you say we go out you know so many people I know go out bird watching and they you know they look at all these incredible species and then they'll go home or go to the supermarket and buy another animal to eat and I mean I'm not questioning anyone's choices I'm not I'm not vegetarian I I, I, I eat very very little meat like one like a couple of times a year but I'll never say I'm a veggie because I'm not um but you know there's there's this sort of a disconnect between the species that you're watching on a way to scrape 
at a wildlife yeah. trust sanct- uh, sanct- uh, reserve and then the species that you're buying from a fridge in Asda you know it's there's such a disconnect yeah there really is I'm a very good at compartmentalizing aren't we and mm-hmm. I think that was you say the book sort of packs a lot in I, I deal with several farmed species as you know so we go through dairy cows and sheep and pigs and laying hens and hens um, chickens for meat used for meat um but then I also have uh, companion animals in there so various welfare problems um experienced by our pets and also horses used for sport and part of the reason for wanting to do that apart you know apart from being desperately keen for everyone to know as much as possible about all of these things was that I didn't want to shine a, a spotlight especially on on any one of them because then people can feel a bit you know those involved with those areas of animal use can feel I don't know victimized or unfairly yeah this uh, is just an attack on farming yeah 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 exactly I like that would be a classic yeah um so it's the, the, the beauty I suppose of that that five needs five freedoms framework is you can just use it as a, a little a little five I don't know five beamed light that you can just shine across all of these areas of animal use and say okay what are we getting right what can we do a bit differently and better um and without sort of fear or favor of any of them and 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 in so doing you do as exactly as you say kind of flush out some of the contradictions and some of the uh artificial boundaries that we're conditioned to construct and accept uh, just through how we set up our society really yeah i liked how in the book as well sort of you go because there's always there's there's extremes of everything isn't it you know again i'm mentioning facebook again you look on facebook if someone posts something about veganism you know you always get the extreme the extreme carnivores come out of the of the of their cave don't they with their little comments but i liked how you (laughs) very much I don't want to say on the fence because I don't because you're not but uh, the way you wrote it and the way you came across you know you went to ex- you went to experience an abattoir you went to experience a dairy farm you went to experience dehorning cattle you know you went to experience all of the, all of these things and then wrote about them um but you weren't sort of force I don't you know forcing the ideas down people's throats you were you mm. were informing people sort of gently and but getting it all across and not sort of you know making it a bit airy fairy as you know you know, mm-hmm. and, and nice you know you weren't you weren't washing over it with anything it was it was direct and to the point but it wasn't it didn't feel extreme you know I know I know quite I've got good friends who are sort of vegan activists and things and the mm-hmm. stuff that they go out and sort of protest with is is extreme and it kind of I think it can deter people deter people off but this didn't this kind of didn't work like that it was very it felt as I say gentle it was like a gentle introduction and exposure to what actually goes on so well, there again, I mean, I'm really, really grateful for that feedback. And it certainly um, feels like it achieved some of the things I hoped it would achieve in terms of the, the tone and the positioning, because um, I, I certainly didn't seek to, to sugarcoat anything. And That's people... the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> well, and people have said it's fairly, it's a fairly unflinching account. So, you know, I think I call a spade a spade. Um, but... Yeah, with, that, with 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 the thought to to simply raise awareness. I mean, I suppose you don't almost have to then go the full hog and, and wave your finger at the end of the chapter because it's a sort of I think for for most compassionate people that read it, people said they cried at certain parts, yeah. you know, and that's really again important and interesting for me as a vet because all of the experiences and accounts that I've shared are, are from my work as a vet and, and formerly as a vet student but we can become desensitized and it's really important to know that 
people that aren't in in that world will be distressed about some of the things we're doing and that's right i think that's absolutely the right um reaction for compassionate people but we don't need yeah we don't need to then hit them over the head with a stick you can just say well this is what's going on mm-hmm. uh, here are some examples importantly of where it's being done better whether that is a, through a retailer's commitment or a new piece of legislation that people have successfully lobbied for you know we can be we can be hopeful but i think you're right that even the psychology of human behavior change would say um and and the the social science of human behavior change uh, would say that if we're kind of too doom laden and judgmental people will just become more entrenched and defensive and not really want to hear about it so and i know that would you know absolutely cross over to the the environmental and conservation movement as well wouldn't it oh absolutely i mean if you if you think about you know the people at the minute who are climbing the top of a bridge and blocking Mm. the dartford crossing that's not going to make people go oh yeah we really need to think about these serious issues that's going to go that's going to make people go god's sake isn't it i mean like even me as an environmentalist i go oh god that's really what are you doing (laughs) you know i see their point and i see what they're doing but but just causing disruption and stuff it's it's not the way to engage with people it's not engaging people it's just shouting at people and people don't respond to that yeah yeah I mean I'm mindful I I I emphasize a lot on the the final chapter as you know is called the power of one and I emphasize a lot that that we each do have ways and means as individuals of helping uh, effects change but then equally I know there can be a a criticism that that then sort of um, um, absolves corporations and governments of their responsibility so and I and I and I get that so I think the way I see individual action is as a a catalyst to help make sure transformative change occurs Mm. uh, at a broader level and sort of creates I don't know a sense of political space because people are talking about things and they're willing to do things and they're carrying their cotton bags across car parks or whatever you know stuff is is happening anyway and it makes it easier then I suppose for for bigger bodies to act Mm -hmm. um but whether that act yeah i mean again i wouldn't like to dictate if people want to take to the streets then as you say we we can understand why people do that and and not just taking to the streets but other more direct (laughs) actions um i think it's a fascinating mix yeah i think all of these things i mean in in my field of animal welfare animal welfare sort of sits alongside as a as a philosophical concept alongside animal rights and you'll know that you know animal rights is more of an abolitionist agenda and it sort of says that we don't have a right to for example murder animals for food or to enslave them as our pets and it's all about seeking an end to to uh, use and exploitation and then we in a well i say we i mean i probably you know subscribe more to the animal welfare based view which is that it's acceptable to use animals for benefit so long as they have a good life and a humane death in return but that's that that is inherently more sort of gentle and evolutionary and working with people you know as a a concept and some of the prompts and challenges and lightning rod moments in the animal welfare movement have really come from the animal rights movement saying no you need to be just ending this all together and that sort of focuses hearts and minds and says well we don't agree with that but we do agree we could be doing more and faster so i think the way these different forms of uh of sort of philosophies and types of action relate to each other and create an overall direction of uh, travel that's progressive as i would say is is fascinating 
It is. And I think, if, as, as you say, you know, there are different sort of schools of thought with the animal rights. And I suppose if I was if I was a dairy farmer and there was animal rights protesters, you know, attacking me, then, of course, I was go- I'm going to be defensive. You know, it's my livelihood. It's you know, all that, that that comes with it. And but yes, as you say, if there's a gentle approach of people saying, right, how can we work with you, not against you, then that's how you're going to make change, I think, personally. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So one reviewer said um, we would have liked to have seen Sean bare his teeth a bit more, <laughs> but most reviewers have been have, have tended to say, you know, we, we were grateful or glad that it wasn't a, uh, as one said, a throw it at you book. I mean, you know, along the lines of your kind comments as well. It's 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 a kind of here's the here are the hard facts. Draw your own conclusion, really. You know, if you're yeah. a compassionate person, you'll see that there are some problems and we need yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to just really quickly touch upon you you mentioned about I can never say the word anthropomorphism. I can never mm. say the word. Um I wanted to get your thoughts on it because I, I you often hear, as you say, people saying, Oh, you could you shouldn't do that, you shouldn't anthropomorphize, um, if that's the word. Um animals. And I just wanted to to see I love hearing people's different thoughts on it and what you yeah. What yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, the, the the book is framed around the concept of human-animal sameness, I suppose. I, I, I begin the book in a, an anatomy class, as you know, um, as part of my undergrad training. Um, and it's, yeah, we've, we've learned about the pentadactyl limb and Charles Darwin and, you know, the fact that we do have a very similar body map um, to, to other mammals, certainly. Um, but still, seeing it, under your scalpel and in your hands I think is is really revelatory and sort of quite profound and seeing all those organs laid out in exactly the same way and seeing as I described the little tunnels and channels in bones which are for specific nerves and specific blood vessels that are common to us all is just is is really important um so if we are anatomic anatomically and in many ways physiologically uh, similar or the same then crucially what's going on in our our minds and our brains and you know the the, the conclusion of, of that sort of line of thinking is that we are indeed all sentient so we have the capacity um to experience feelings generate feelings and to consciously experience feelings um like pleasure and pain um so that's a given but it's always, you know, if you really get into the philosophy of it, it's always um, un- unreachable. Uh, you know, I, I can't, I have probably a sense of how you might be feeling now. Mm. Um, and as a fellow, because you're a member of the same species as me and you're behaving in certain ways. And if I ask you, you can tell me, um, and not, you know, for our non-verbal human, uh, non-human fellows, we can't do those things. Um, although we have to remember we can't do those things with for example uh, pre-verbal infants of our own species either so we have these problems even within our own species Um, so anthropomorphism is accepting that we are sentient and our that that our non-human fellow beings are sentient um, and that we probably the science would suggest we have very similar subjective worlds um, and conscious experiences but we don't want then so accepting that, that that's the case and that therefore we have moral duties to the animals that we keep and use for our benefits that are similar to uh, moral duties that we that we have to other sentient humans although they're not the same we nevertheless don't want to then just assume that all of these animals are 
just like little people. They're not little people in furry, feathery and scaly <laughs> suits. You know, so we, we, we the term for it um, to try and kind of get the best of both worlds is, is so-called critical anthropomorphism or, or rational anthropomorphism, which is to say. They are very, very similar to us. They have similar capacities for emotions, but they are also they also have species specific needs, which we should um, uh, assess and understand. Uh, so recognize and uh, and understand how to meet them. And that then I think does get the best of both worlds. You know, we're not making the mistake of thinking that they're like little people, mm-hmm. but we are accepting that they have um, mental worlds. And particularly in the case of morally relevant feelings like pleasure and pain that are similar uh, to us and that's how we deal with sentience and anthropomorphism it's interesting isn't it because i remember reading when i again when i was doing my undergrad dissertation about is it the is it the phylotypic stage where every every embryo of is it of every mammal is like the same for a certain amount of time and everyone mm. like everyone all, all these little embryos and they, they had an, an yeah. image that all these they were all lined up all these different species and for the first few weeks of life or they, they look you can't distinguish between yeah them. i'm yeah. sure someone with a good eye probably could <laughs> i couldn't um yeah. and i just and it was just seeing something like that in front of you of all these different species that you you think you're so different to and actually thinking oh we're not <laughs> you know absolutely yeah we might be able to talk and you know invent stuff but yeah <laughs> Yeah. And there again, when you think down the two channels of sort of um, conservation and species and the environment versus animal welfare, I think you can it's applicable here as well. So the importance in both cases is isn't it is to not to use another anthro you know not be anthropocentric and think mm-hmm. that we're just at the center of the world and sort of detached from nature. In both you know in both cases, then in seeking to. Uh, implore people to to recognize that we are part of nature then you can look at it in terms of our very building blocks and our cells and as we say our anatomy and our physiology and our sentience we've got that kind of commonality mm-hmm. as well as the, the the broader commonality of being a part of the web of life and sort of ecological commonality and all the threads between us and how you know a healthy um ecosystem and um it's dependent on us acting in certain responsible ways so I think I suppose it all sort of comes down I guess to like a sense of deep ecology and it's just having well to me at least you know in my humble opinion but this sort of general respect for life this general appreciation that we are so similar and that we are crucially just another animal on the planet and mm-hmm. we need to be a bit humble and, and try and act in a, in a way that it reflects stewardship rather than dominion is, yeah. is how I would say it absolutely all right then well I think we're getting towards the end now I don't want to keep you forever but although I could keep talking to you all day but um I know that you're from your book I know that you're um a keen birder and you're you know I feel like you could probably idea tail feather flying past you in the dark um that's the I mean from Miranda Kristovnikov's forward as well that's kind of the 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 vibe I get I really want to go birding with you one day um (laughs) um, but if you if you're talking about sort of getting out and sort of that respect for life and and sort of connecting with nature and stuff how do you think like simple things that people can do to to sort of enhance their knowledge of 
nature and the connection with nature and the knowledge of animal welfare and combine all that how can people mm. do that so just normal everyday people listening to this mm. episode like what can they do some of the loveliest things i've read on on some of the websites where people have left reviews is things like they say that they've taken their earbuds out when they go for their daily walk mm-hmm. um after reading the book they've they've thought to maybe listen to the birds a bit more and look up and and, and listen um another saying you know they've they've thought to pay more attention to nature and maybe go and read a, a bird book and and yeah and some of them were like reading a bird book as they went along like oh nightjar what's a nightjar this sounds fascinating and what are these pink footed geese and so you know that sort of stuff is absolutely I, I guess if only 10 people read the book if you got that, that that's been the best feedback the thought that people might be paying attention to the natural world so I think that would be my first thing to pay attention you know we have our senses and what I love about being in nature is the way that they, and you will no fine well as well the way that your senses bristle mm-hmm. and you see beautiful things and maybe if you do know a bit about a certain species migration then seeing them at that moment then connects you to Africa or the yeah. high arctic tundra or wherever it is that they've just come from or are going to um you can think about their their nests and how marvelous they are um and their their, their sounds if you just listen and that I mean go back to the pink footed geese on the marsh before they take off at dawn and it's those haunting calls coming from the mm-hmm. dark you know so I think sensing nature first and foremost just opening your senses maybe taking your earbuds out and just looking for it and listening for it is is surely number one um and then if you do see something a little a butterfly that you've probably spotted in your garden loads of times before you think, well, I'll just go and check out what that butterfly actually is and you get your little guidebook mm-hmm. you find it might be a painted lady that's migrated you know we had that how does a butterfly fly across the world from like north africa just that just seems improbable and fascinating um and then you might think well i'm very fortunate to have a little patch of a back garden um i could choose not to pave over it i know there's a big issue of people paving over their gardens um for various reasons so you might just simply choose not to do that then you might look for plants for pollinators or packets of seeds that are good for pollinators and grow something that's going to attract more painted ladies in the in future years these are all the, the simple things that we all end up doing are they not and you just you just start noticing um animals encouraging them through really basic acts you I mean you might only have a little patio pot or a few patio pots and you can still grow beautiful dahlias and rudbeckias and plant they're really simple to grow you know you can easily find um videos and magazine articles and what have you on, on how to on how to grow plants from seed the cheapest chips packet of seed two pound seeds we're gonna get 50 plants out of them if you've got space and inclination um and they'll be covered in butterflies through the summer and you know buzzing with bees and all the rest of it um i i mean i include some other examples in the book but then you might choose to join one of the charities you know um it could be an environmental charity an animal welfare charity they start sending you their magazine and their emails are these the ripples in a pond aren't they charlie and then um you know you can be thoughtful about as we've said already thoughtful about your purchasing decisions in supermarkets uh some of the meat and dairy have so say uh higher welfare labels on them uh, and logos I include examples of those in the book so you can you can select those um, logos to then support practices that accord with your your values and your uh, growing interest in in trying to exert um, positive influence. 
these are these are the things. And, and you can or, I think don't they say talking about it is important as well. You're brilliant at Twitter, putting all these sorts of things <laughs> on Twitter. I don't think you need to be. Uh, I always think there's a I find I, I have a, a mixed relationship with Twitter because some things can seem a bit sort of especially if you've got a book out self advertorial mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, self promoting. But I think there is something about you. You know, if you have planted a few seeds and you've seen some beautiful butterflies in that garden you put it on twitter and, and people say like, oh yeah the world's not such a bad place and i might do that next year i don't know <laughs> no, i think that's it isn't it? i think for me definitely by the more i've sort of connected and the deeper i sort of connect with nature the more of an understanding and more of a, a want to understand like sort of deeper animal welfare issues and stuff i mean i saw my first brent geese of the season today uh, I went out for a walk um really exciting um because I've been I've been waiting for those. I've, we've had pink yeah. feet, um, so I was waiting for the Brent geese, and I saw them today. And I just think, like, even now, like the connection between a, a Brent goose and a chicken, like mm. the shelf in the supermarket. You know, it just mm. it, those connections start to form for me. I don't know, if, you know, I'm sure everyone's different, but for me, definitely, I start to make those connections and then start to think a bit more deeper about these these issues so yeah 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 these are the, I mean at the end of the day they're, they're all and I do try and make this case in the book they're all individual animals with their own individual preferences and needs and wants and um <clears throat> I think if, if we if one gets put into a category that they are simply a, a kind of means to an end for humans so we view them as that just in very instrumental functional terms you know what what's in it for us rather than at least recognizing that they're individuals and have intrinsic value as well as instrumental value, then then there are, there are great risks for those animals because they become, uh, I'll say dehumanized, but, you know, sort of um, objectified and commodified. Um, and, and then we, if we go down that route, you know, we've got no incentive to, to go above and beyond for their welfare. It doesn't matter if we highly restrict their movement or subject them to painful procedures we just view them as a tool and a means to an end and I think that's really it's dehumanizing for us isn't it that's how I would feel about that it's uh, obviously bad for them but what does it say about us as a as an ethical and compassionate species absolutely well I think we'll end on a a super silly cheery note and I'm going to ask you a very serious question okay are you coming home for Eurovision ah yeah <laughs> the house in the house <laughs> well I, i've seen the headlines that say um accommodation costs have gone through the roof so uh yeah but i can i could stay with my parents couldn't i um, i've booked my grandma's house have you? <laughs> yeah already the day it was announced i was like this is come no don't don't let anyone else stay this is me <laughs> so, fantastic and yeah. do you think you'll go to uh to the arena I hope so. I've won. I'm so I'm a massive. You might be able to tell from me asking that question. Um, but I'm a huge Eurovision fan. Like I live for Eurovision. It's the best night of the year. And right. my children are equally as obsessed with Eurovision um, as I am. So I'm hoping to get tickets for either the family show, or one of the rehearsals, or something. So, but definitely, de- I That's think funny. I think Liverpool's such. It's uh, arguably it's the only place it could have been. Really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. yeah. No, I love saying stuff like that. I mean, when you when Liverpool had the European capital of culture, I think it was 2008, and just having the world's eyes, you know, on your your home city is you know, very proud. Uh, rich musical history, hey, with the Beatles and others. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, bring it'll it on. Be a good one. It'll be a good one. Anyway, right. Well, I love to end on a positive note, and I think where how much more positive can you get than Eurovision? So. <laughs> 
stuff. Yeah, but thank you so much um, for chatting to me today. I think we've covered some really sort of really deep issues, but like I, I hope that like in your book, we've sort of covered them gently and sort of made it accessible to people. And yeah, if where can people get your book? Where can if you do? Do you have your own website that you like people to buy it through? Or no, no, you can just Google it. It's on most of the the, the major retailers. Yeah. Um, you know your Waterstones, your Amazon, your Blackwell. So, yeah, just Google the title, you'll find it. Perfect, perfect. And I highly recommend it to anyone who is looking for something to read. As the winter nights draw in, um, <laughs> and you're looking for something to curl up with, then yeah, as I say, it's so it's so poetic in places with your descriptions and stuff that you kind of you you lose yourself in it, and you kind of almost forget that you're reading these really hard hitting issues, and you come away and sort of process them and think, yeah, okay, yeah, this is this is important and this is good. So thank you for making me aware of the book and letting me chat about it with you <laughs> very kind charlie thank you so much thank um, you. <laughs> i feel like i could also talk for many more hours with you as well but we'll, we should stop <laughs> yes thank you I really enjoyed this episode and I learnt so much from Sean's book. I went through all of the emotions when I was reading it and it certainly made me stop and think about the choices I make and perhaps most importantly, it's made me talk to people about the choices we all make. As I always say, we are so powerful together and we just need to start making the right choices for the species we share our environment with. Sean's book is available to purchase now and I hope you will go away wanting to read it and learn more for yourself. I'm not going to end with a quote this time, but I wanted to end with the five freedoms which Sean and I discussed throughout this episode. I hope that by hearing them, you will take them with you and consider them as you move through your day. One, freedom from hunger and thirst. Two, freedom from discomfort. Three, freedom from pain, injury or disease. Four, Freedom to express normal behaviour. 5. Freedom from fear or distress. I'm Charlie and this has been Mounting Conversations. <laughs>